Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I am again your host, Sean Merwin, here with my invaluable partner, Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. Once thank again, you back for filling the in incredible, for, uh, last the, week. Oh, you know what I just noticed? I still have the Celeste overlay on you. So you are currently, but wait, ah, I'll you're be back. Celeste. You are Sean Merwin once more. I, uh, oh, I I wish I wish I could be Celeste, uh, but you know you can't always get what you want. No. By the way, thank you to Celeste for filling in on short notice last week. Uh, we really do appreciate you doing that and appreciate all the work that you're doing. So thank you, and thank you, Teos, for uh, for dealing with my whatever that was that happened last week. Uh, yeah, no, I mean as as I said, tech issues were only some of the issues, but. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, happy post Father's Day. Uh, I hope it was good for you. It was good for me. My my family, uh, my my wife made French toast, which is for special occasions. We don't know why, but it is, and, and it's Ooh. great. Love it. I got chicken enchiladas, which is my favorite meal that my wife makes. So I I feel feel quite honored. I, my, for dinner, my wife and my daughter had chicken enchiladas. I kid yeah. you not. That see, it's a chicken enchilada day. <laughs> Here at Mastering Dungeons. How you fathers day. And it's also Origins Week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's also Origins Week. I will be attending. Uh, and of course, being a creator of DD content, I will be running uh Star Trek Adventures while I'm there. So I'm looking forward nice. to that. It's been a while since I've dug dug into that game. So uh we'll see how it goes. Nice. That's fun. Yeah. But we have a ton of uh, listener email, listener comments, listener questions, which we will get to right now in our listener corner. First, we have Grandpa's advice via Twitter. Is there an easy way to run an interesting campaign? I have a copy of The Wild Beyond the Witchlight, but don't know where to start. I also have memory problems, so uh, know that reading the whole thing a year ahead will be a lot of time and effort with very little value. So what do you think, Teos? Ooh, yeah. Um, I I think that it depends on what you want out of your campaign, how you want to prep for it. And and you sort of have to to develop your own style of what will lead you to running Mm -hmm. a good game. There are some DMs that can glance at a page, put it away, and go for four hours. And it's a great session and everybody's, you know, cheering. And then for some folks, doing that is a disaster. and, and, and then some folks just like to prep. Like I can sometimes do that, but I just like prepping. Like prepping makes me feel good, makes me, puts me in a happy place for the gaming session. So I probably over prep, but that's part of what makes the run enjoyable for me is having had that early prep. I feel good about it. Um, so the, the more that you want to follow the word of the adventure closely, then I think the more that prep pays off to really understand what that written word is saying but you don't need that. And especially if you're not going to remember a lot of it, then don't waste the time on it, right? Um, try different approaches, mm-hmm. like maybe read the section that you're going to have come up. So that intro section to get started and then make some bullet points and rip off of that, right? Is a perfectly acceptable way to approach it, especially if you're not going to remember those little details, make them up, right? Um, but my, my approach is I read the whole adventure then I read the section I'm about to run I make a bullet point outline on paper. I print out the monsters because that's something I want to have to be able to write on and whatever. And then I have the adventure open 
but my outline is the main thing I work off of. Yeah, I mean, the easy way to run an interesting campaign depends on what you find interesting and what your players find interesting. But, you know, if you talk about that in terms of using a published adventure, I am in a very similar boat to Grandpa's advice. I tend to not run regularly. Maybe if we can get two or even one session in a, a month, I'm lucky. So if I'm running a published adventure, I will have forgotten everything that that has been read ahead of time. Mm -hmm. So I, I need to focus very much on what am I doing today? What am I doing right now? One thing that you can do if you have trouble prepping is not to prep at all, including not using a published adventure. <laughs> That's where the tables that we've been talking about can come in extremely handy. You can sit down and roll up the, the adventure on the fly. That way, you don't need to worry about prepping. And also, you know, everybody has different issues with memory and how they best remember things. But for some people, it's I can't remember something I've read, but I can remember something I've created. Mm -hmm. So if you're creating the adventure on the fly, oh, we they they're going into a dungeon. And later in the show, we are going to make a dungeon on the fly. <laughs> they're going into a dungeon. I'm going to do this randomly. Boom. Here's the first thing. What's in here? Boom. It's two trolls. Okay. Two trolls. What are the trolls doing? And as you make the adventure, if they're guarding uh, a prisoner, that prisoner that you make will now be more in your memory than this person that you read about in, in a, in a book six months ago. Now that person becomes important and you can decide why they're important. Yeah. You can make the story or let the players make the story. And that can be an interesting way to run a campaign. For prep tips, obviously you have Mike Mike uh, Mike Shea, Sly mm -hmm. Flourish, who talks all about prepping. Uh, there are a series of books from Engine Publishing about gameplay, prepping, running things at the table, making NPCs, and so on that are really really uh, valuable to have if you have trouble prepping or if you need help or if you need advice on prepping. So I would suggest those as well. Yeah, and something like I like a, a hybrid approach between your suggesting of like a, something like Wild Beyond the Witchlight. You could look at it and sort of go like, okay, what are the main things? Right, like we start in the carnival, then we go to this, then we go to that, mm -hmm. and you can use that to help you create the structure. But then you add those pieces that are really yours. So what are the carnival events? Whatever you want them to be, versus trying to make their events and run them their way. That can be the part where the memory hits the right, like <laughs> it goes off the rails, and, and you feel mm -hmm. bad because you're not doing whatever the book said. But the book is just whatever someone came up with. It's not perfect. I mean, Wildo is an amazing writer, and so is everybody else who was on the team. But right. you know, you just you know, you 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 can whatever you do for your group will probably be good. And one of the most insulting events I had in my life, self-inflictedly insulting, was when I was very young. I think I, I think I was probably a freshman in college, youngish. I um I ran a game. And I made, up, like, I didn't have anything prepped. And like, who cares? Just make it up. And I'm like, uh, okay. And I made it up. And they were like, that was the best thing ever. And that mm -hmm. was so insulting to me because it meant that every time that I'd either homebrewed or run a campaign was not as good as this stupid thing I just made up that I didn't even like that much. <laughs> but right. I did learn from that as much as it hurts. It still hurts my feelings, honestly, like it still does. But it's that idea that sometimes mm -hmm. working off the moment really is better, right? And and yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't hurt to try it. 
try at one session, try to just work from an index card worth of notes and make the rest up as you go and see how it feels. And if it doesn't work, you can always go back and try something else. But if it does work, or if it works to a limited extent, you know what works and what doesn't, and you can take what works and incorporate it into your prep or into your gameplay. If you're really great at making NPCs up on the fly, then make them up on the fly. If you're really great at putting encounters together on the fly, then forget what's in the book and put those encounters together on the fly going forward. Next, yeah, next we have a question from Cistern via Twitter. For years, I've read about the swinginess of D20-based TTRPG systems and how they can lead to player dissatisfaction, especially at low levels. How could one address this concern without completely throwing out what many enjoy about D20 systems in general? Teos. Yeah, I think the the big impact that you usually talk about with the swinginess is when everyone feels that someone should succeed but then they roll low, right? So like you give an amazing in-character speech and you're the diplomat of the party. You're an expert. You've got plus whatever your role and you roll that one. And because the spread of the D20 between one and 20 is so huge, there is always that possibility of failure or almost always in most editions of, of D&D. So you fail despite everything saying you should succeed and everybody feeling like the narrative is heading towards success. So as a DM, we can, you know, raise the importance of what players are saying and doing. Like maybe we don't need a roll or we get advantage. So you roll the one, but are you going to roll one twice? You know, like hopefully not. Um, the other thing you can do is lean into the failure in a fun way so that if you fail, you say, okay, everything came out right. Somehow this didn't work. And let's, you know, on the fly make up why did that happen, right? Like you're talking the guards into letting you in but they specifically seem to not let you in, make me an insight check, even though everything you said was perfect. Oh, you think they've been paid off to, you know, prevent your entrance. Like they were expecting this. No words were going to work, no matter how good. or Something like that, right? That, that furthers the narrative and explains the failure in some way. What do you think, Sean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what Teo said, uh, plus. Uh, the, the first thing is swinginess. The definition for swinginess for me is a little different. What swinginess means for me is with the same rules and the same check, an unarmored commoner with a club could defeat an armored, highly trained fighter with a great sword just because the die rolls come out that way. And you can think of it the same way as the 18 strength barbarian is trying to lift the gate and the eight strength wizard is trying to lift the gate. And the chances of them, of the barbarian failing, but the wizard succeeding is pretty, it's it's higher than you would think it should be story-wise. Mm-hmm. Story-wise, you have Conan versus Raceland, mm-hmm. and Conan should win every time in the lifting of the, the gates thing. But that D20 can be so random that more, a, more, a higher percentage of the time, Raceland might succeed where where uh conan fails so that's that's swinginess to me and so what you can do to prevent certain types of swinginess is don't call for die rolls when there's no consequences to failure uh if there's no consequence oh you can't lift the gate 
uh, but you're going to try again 25 more times or you're going to be able to break it down anyway. So just say you lift the gate. If there's no consequence story-wise or otherwise uh, to failure, just say you did it. What other games do is they give built-in mechanics that lets you pretty much auto-succeed if it's important enough that you need to. So for fate, you know, we have, you could use uh, those aspect. fate points mm -hmm. to re-roll a terrible roll, tap the aspects to get, and you could stack fate points from other people. So that pretty much you can auto-succeed. There will be a cost later, mm -hmm. but you can do that. So D&D tries to have those rules. They understand the value of those rules, but it's never been a part of the game. So they're like, okay, here's inspiration. Inspiration is supposed to give you a way to sort of hedge your bets and you will more likely than not succeed if you use your inspiration here. But it's still not strong enough, either mechanically or narratively, to capture the imagination or of the storytellers or capture the mechanical benefits of the of the number crunchers. Yeah. So D&D hasn't embraced that yet. But there is a rule that allows that to happen. That's called rule zero. Right. Mm -hmm. That says for the fun of the table, ignore the rules and do what what needs to happen. So rule zero can overcome swinginess. But people are hesitant to do that because the rules are so ingrained in us that, well, a, a failure on the die is a failure on the die. Deal with it. Yeah. And that's been reinforced over the editions and over the years and through our storytelling, uh, you know, our, our games. So it's it's going to be a hurdle for the game to overcome until we acknowledge the fact that swinginess, it can be fun at times, but it can be bad for the game. And until we say, okay, we're going to put in a rule to overcome that, it's always going to be there. Yeah, and that makes me think of that, you know, that previous example of like you're making a role and you get that one and, and how do you explain it? And, and one of the ways to do it is to say that, no, you did succeed, but something else happens, right? Like you sway the king mm -hmm. with your great words, but you can tell that there are a couple of people who really don't like what you said, right? So there's some complication, some cost, some other piece that gets you past the fact that it should be a failure. Something else happened there and then mm -hmm. you could work with that as well. It's another angle. But, but a lot of it is that D&D... It can be a feature, right? Like D&D &D is the swinginess is part of the play and part of the, the story that we look for. And you can see like in the D&D &D movie, right, where uh, there's a scene at a bridge and one guy's explaining exactly how the trap works and the other one sets it off. And that's that kind of humor mm -hmm. that D&D &D sometimes right. have where you can't take it for granted that you'll succeed. Whereas on the opposite side, like I think of Knights Black Agents and Knights Black Agents is really replicating those action movies where you know, in Mission Impossible, when you need to shoot that one chain link to like break the platform apart, you can't. And how do you do it? Well, you buy points, right? You mm -hmm. spend points because you just know that you're going to hit, you know you're going to succeed because it's what you do. And the game enables that. D&D &D doesn't mm -hmm. try to enable that kind of a feel, right? Yeah, totally. Hmm. Next, we have a question from Marcelo, the Valiant via Twitter. Hi, Marcelo. Good to hear from you. Do you wonder why some systems have many different or few dice? Is there something beyond just them being a determiner of success, pl plot drivers, etc.? This is 
this is a really interesting question to me and it's it's you could take it on many different levels uh but mm-hmm. i will let teos go first i think some of it is that there's the economy of the entire game is based off of what you roll and so as you're building a game it matters what happens right if you're rolling a, a single d6 like in knights black agents then that makes it a really narrow area to plan around, right? Like your your target number can't be 24 unless you've got something really unusual going on with the D6, a way that it explodes or something like that, um, or huge bonuses, right? And so the simpler the game, the easier it is to work off of a smaller 2D6, D6, something like that. Um, but then you get into something like third edition, right? Where your DC, like I, I once succeeded at a at a tracking check of 50 that was written into an adventure. Uh, though, to be honest, the person that put in the adventure for me. Uh, <laughs> but it was in a Lynn <laughs> Greyhog organized play campaign, but still a DC of 50, right? Off of a D20. Because that's how wild the bonuses were with all that swinginess. And that enables crunch, right? To have that D20 plus all of these different pieces hanging off of it. Um mm-hmm. And so, so I think when you're building it, you're trying to, the, the RPG, you're trying to think of what you want that to work like. Um, dice are probabilities, which feels different too, right? So that's why the great axe is D12, because it's the idea that it can do this huge hit, but also just a glancing blow or a tiny cut because you just dodge it. And so it feels like the kind of thing that should sometimes be big, sometimes be small versus always being reliable, right? The dagger is always a D4, so it's just doing but so much. Um, and games do that too, right? Fate uses the D6, but has only three outcomes. The dice and fantasy flight games have a fur permutations. So these symbols or numbers give you just a few combinations that you can play with and make it reliable. And, and that's, I think, what yeah. tr- you're trying to recreate a certain feel, a certain probability range, and then build off of that. What do you think, John? Yeah, it's, it, it's both. It's probability and it's feel. It's It's how do you want to get from the narrative that you're starting with to the narrative that you're ending with and what goes on in between this, the end of I try to do this and the start of here's the result. And so if you want it simple, if you want it quick, you want a die or not even a die, but you, you know, a a playing Mm -hmm. card, a coin Mm -hmm. toss, a rock, paper, scissors throw that is quick, easy, or that's complicated and convoluted. And so that's why, and sometimes the dice, just the dice themselves are, 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 are beautiful, right? Those fantasy flight star, star Wars dice, you see them and you just want to use them. Mm -hmm. You want to roll them to see these different symbols come up. And now these different symbols translate into something that could be done numerically, Yeah, but they choose not to because they want you to not just look at the numbers, but look at the story as a whole. Whereas D&D often wants you to look at the numbers and you can look at the story as a whole if you choose to, but you don't need to because all you're doing is subtracting hit points from a creature and you don't need to know the ins and outs of every single blow. You just need to know, did I do two points of damage? Did I do 20 points of damage? And that's so... That's what the dice want you to to do. Another fun example is the uh, poker deck that's used in the Deadlands role-playing game. Right, It's just a perfect fit where it could be a die, it could be a table, 
but having it be based off of pulling a card from a from a deck of cards it just feels in world right it, it's such a great call to do that and not all editions mm -hmm. of it have done it i think and, and when they don't there's been sort of protests because it's like come on like this is just such a perfect fit uh-huh yep but you know if you're going to buy all these dice uh, people make money off selling dice so you they also there's that part of it too we want to make a few extra uh euros uh by selling you a a die or, or 20 so thank you for that question. Uh, next, we have Ryan Service via Twitter. We always talk about ways to be a better DM, but what are some techniques to shine as a player? What are the kind of things DMs love to see and are great for uh, and are great for the table? Um, so add a character just, I mean, it's in character too, but caring about the setting, caring about the adventure and the stakes of it are huge. Right. That makes the DM so happy when you care. They tell you something and you feed off of it and work off of it. Um, that involvement reflects an, an agency that, that your character should have, that they desire that you have. Right. Join a faction, champion the cause, form friendships with NPCs, uh, ask to do this, this thing based off of whatever happened in the scene. That kind of thing really, really works really well. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've got two answers. The first is a sort of game mechanical thing, and it's understand what your what your character can do. Um, know the limits of what it can do, and don't try to do more than you're supposed to, but be able to, if the DM says, all right, you're using that spell, what does that spell do? Know what the spell does, and if you want to push it beyond that, then have a conversation with the DM. But if everybody has to stop and the DM has to go look up the thing that your character is supposed to, to do, it can really slow the game down. Now, obviously, if you're a new player, if you're teaching, that's a whole different story. But, you know, in general, know, know what you're and don't make the DM have to say, I don't think that spell can do that and go to the book and say, you know, you're, you're trying to do something here. And it specifically says in the spell that you can't do that, but you're, you're trying to do that. And I'm talking about one of my players specifically here, if you, if in case you missed it. Um, but you know, that the, the second thing is to be the best wingman, wing person uh, that you can be right. Set up other people to do their thing and to tell their stories, especially help the DM do their thing and tell their stories there, you know, without, uh, Bud Abbott, right. Abbott had Costello mm -hmm. or was it vice versa? Uh, right. The, the Marx brothers, you know, Harpo and Groucho and Chico couldn't do their thing without Zeppo. You need the person who is the norm mm. for that. Other people can, can play off of. And so everyone should get a shot of doing that at the table. So be the setup person, let the other people yeah. do their, tell their funny story, do their funny thing, whether it's story-wise or mechanically, uh, you know, be that person. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is really interesting how those kinds of players, it, it makes such a huge difference. Like it really is. And one of the, I think it's just be observant of what your role does at the table, how you behave, how your character, what your character does. Um, because those dynamics are really worth seeing. And like, I think of a campaign where the use of summoning spells in fifth edition, where 
hordes of creatures suddenly plop onto the table, clogging the entire movement of both enemies and mm -hmm. PCs. And bags of hit points that sort of can't be defeated, but don't add a whole lot. And it's like, yes, it does help you win, but it's not great play. And I think if you watch it, like I remember when I first mm -hmm. did one of these spells and I was like, this isn't really good for the combat. Just being aware of that. Well, this is yeah. tactically great, but I'm just going to not cast this. You know, it's just, it's, it clogs it mm -hmm. up. <laughs> yep. So thank you for that question, Ryan. Uh, we have Bearded Goblin via Mastodon who asks, what is your favorite non-standard TTRPG? Non-standard being not the six attributes with armor class, hit points, classic classes, etc. What's your call there, Teos? I think Shadow of the Demon Lord's too close to that, so I can't say that one. So the gumshoe system, I think mm -hmm. just because it's so good at doing what it's trying to do. It knows exactly what its goal is, and, and everything about the game is is really achieving that in a flexible enough way to do a lot of genres, which is cool. What about you? Uh, my answer will change based on the day you ask me. But right now I'm going to say Fate because it's very flexible, mm -hmm. and it sort of carries... There's an old saying that like character is fate or character is destiny, and that really gets to the point of role-playing games for me, which is not just what you do, but who you are as the character should be important in both the story and the game. And fate brings that through about as well as any game that I can imagine, but I'm running star Trek adventures at origins in like four days. So yeah, maybe it'll be the 2d 20 system. Once I actually get into that again and play with it a little more. Okay. And our final question, eternal apprentice via Mastodon. How do I sell raiding mechanics to a group of gamers that are squeamish about killing captive monsters or other such workplace atrocities that traditional gaming culture makes necessary? And I think this refers to uh, one of the mechanics that we did at Ghostfire Gaming for the Raider's Guide to Valica Kickstarter and book. And so there's a couple things here. These raiding mechanics work also for defending from raiders as well as being the raiders. So you can always use them as the defenders. And raiding, as we describe it, does not necessarily mean killing. In fact, we may go out of our way to say that these raiders are going after resources. And one of the worst things that you can do if you need resources is to kill the people that create the resources that you're going to need again next year. So that's part of it. The other part is you can use these raiding rules to storm a fortress of monsters. You can attack a giant village or an ogre village, or you can use these uh, mechanics to do a lot of different things. And it's more about the strategy of raiding and understanding the resources that you're trying to capture rather than just kill everything in sight. So that's one way that I would sell these uh, raiding mechanics that, that are in that book. Okay, so thank you to everyone for communicating with us through those variety of ways. We do have a little bit of news to get through, so let's jump in with the Gamehole Con releasing its event list. Uh, the, the October convention that Teos and I will be at is, of course, in Madison, Wisconsin. And what are you doing there, Teos? Uh, some things that I'm really excited about. So I am running uh, along with you a Mastering Dungeons live recording. 
That is super fun. Mm, always fun. Um, I'm running a couple sessions mm-hmm. of the Clockwork Tower. My son and I have been diving back into that project. Uh, and then I've got two seminars, Narrative Design in Tabletop Games and Breaking into Tabletop Design. And so you've got a bunch of really cool events, too. Awesome. Yeah, I've got that same Mastering Dungeons live show. Uh, we also are doing a... Uh, I think there's a, a seminar I'm doing with Joe Rosso of Ghostfire Gaming on creating uh, products, but I, I'll have to double check that one. Uh, we are running, t- I am running two slots of a game called We All Fall Down. It's, it's a 5e game set in our Aurora world. Uh, I'm doing three seminars. Oh, there, that's the one I'm doing with Joe Rosso. Mm-hmm. One world, many games, one game, many worlds, talking about making different. Uh, games for a world or making different worlds for a game. Then I have seminars on creating tabletop role-playing game system design and world building for tabletop role-playing games. And you can see all of that at the gameholecon.com events list. So tell me about what happened with Reddit. Cause I was <laughs> a little out of the loop last week. Yeah. Uh, if you're familiar with the, uh, let's call it encrapification process, uh, Reddit has seemed to uh-huh. jump onto this bandwagon that we've seen Twitter and other, you know, Facebook, other spaces uh, get hit where Reddit announced changes to how APIs allow moderation and reading the site by third parties, uh, as well as some other changes that, that they were coming up with that are all based on the idea of going public, which is a goal that they've had a while back to, to go public, have shares, increase revenue, buy horse ranches, whatever it is that folks owning companies think is cool. Um, and Reddit is a common platform for discussion with gaming. People follow subreddits that focus in on topics. And the way that all these things work is the admins are volunteering for their time, often using these third-party tools to be able to administer and run these areas. So the change hurts this. And in response, about 7,600 subreddits went dark, turning themselves to private to post the changes. Reddit has not backed down. They've, uh, in fact, made comments like how Elon Musk is doing so well with Twitter, and they are sure that this is the strategy they should go on. And so they are, in fact, threatening to replace admins. And, and it's been said that they've reached out to some admins already saying, you know, go back uh, to pub to, to being public or else uh, that they'll be replaced. And, and there are a number of funny things. You know, there's a, a subreddit for pictures, which apparently has voted to only allow, uh, while this is all going on, only allow pictures of John Oliver where John Oliver looks sexy. There are a couple of different variations of this. But it's the latest example of gaming communities where a major area uh, for gamers to congregate, the platform changes for the worst in this kind of hope to explode revenue-wise. So we'll have to see where this goes from here. And if at some point, you know, humanity stands up against this in some way. <laughs> yeah, so basically the only option I have left is to walk outside and just scream my my news and opinions into into the uh, the wilderness. Is that where we're at? Yeah, I mean, you know, there are still a couple of places that seem to operate. Uh, You know, you can go hang out at Ian World and a few other small forums. Um, But yeah, I mean, Discord's doing problematic things. It's hard to find a place that isn't kind of doing things that isn't small and independent, right? And so, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, while we're on this topic of sort of legal business-related things, Renegade Game Studios issued a cease and desist on a very small Kickstarter. So what happened here? Well, Renegade Game Studios, they make many licensed role-playing games, especially from Hasbro, like Transformers, G.I. Joe. They also work on Power Rangers, as well as Alice is Missing, Kids on Bikes, an edition of Vampire the Masquerade. So Renegade Game Studios went to a small Kickstarter and told it to change its name. This Kickstarter was being called Renegade City, a modern-day tabletop role-playing game where you get to play anti-heroes who are criminals. This company that did this is called Polyhedral Dice or Polyhedral Knights. So Renegade Games issued the cease and desist, saying that the name creates confusion with their game studio. The quote was, unfortunately, your use of the term Renegade in the title of your new game creates a the likelihood that consumers might be confused between our clients' games and your game, client being the lawyers of uh, Renegade mm-hmm. Game Studios. Or believe that the two are connected or affiliated. The likelihood of confusion is particularly acute because you are using the Renegade element on the identical types of products that are sold by Renegade, and you are both selling this to the same types of consumers in the same market channels. Uh, So this Kickstarter is over now. And they said that their goal of $3,000 is hardly enough to cover legal costs. So it is unclear at this point, or at least as of this recording, what the company will do. The only now we, we, you know, you would say here, really, Really? So if I make a game called Wizards Unite, Wizards of the Coast would then have a right to come and say you can't use the name Wizards? That seems a little bit beyond the pale. Um, Now, I'm sure legally that this is something that they feel it's smart to do just because. But within the last hour or so, we had a little bit of a, an addendum to this. Teos, do you want to give your opinion yeah, and talk I mean, about this I think added thing? Everybody's trying to figure out, like, what is the thing that's the infringement other than the name? And the only thing that people can find is that the, the imagery, and of course the type of game it is, plays off a bit, in fact, off of Grand Theft Auto, but there's no relationship between grand theft auto and renegade games it's sort of funny to be like why is renegade suing if anything it would be the company that makes grand theft auto which is totally different it's really hard to to understand where the the suit is coming from there have been some people saying that they've had suits from uh well one news site i saw was talking about how renegade games had come after them in the past for something they clearly didn't want to really get into the details um and and it had sort of gone away. And someone else was saying that they'd had a situation like this. And what they had done is basically said, please confirm. They responded to the law firm saying, please confirm that you believe this is an issue and explain more. And they never wrote back. So it may be that there's sort mm-hmm. of, you know, this is just a, a sort of shot across the bow and attempt to, to get them to just change for change sake. And that they wouldn't actually go to court. You know, they wouldn't press it further. It's hard to say, especially maybe with the negative press. but. It does not put Renegade Game Studios in a in a good light to have handled it in this manner, um, and I, I don't think there's I, this, everything I've seen has said that Renegade Game Studios did not respond to any news organization, you know, news organization um, 
seeking a response. Right. So, so, you know, but it, it, people are talking about it doesn't make them look good. And, and, and at least so far, none of us can figure yeah. out why this would happen. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. And it, it's, it's even more interesting because Renegade's connection to Hasbro's licensed properties has put it, it should put it obviously mentally in a connection to Hasbro mm. and all, all the anti-Hasbro rhetoric and vitriol out there has not washed off on Renegade Game Studios. They have been able to, right. people generally, if you talk about Renegade Game Studios, you know the people that work there or you know their games and you, you're you like, okay, cool. They, they're good, good folks, make a good right. game. Good designers. And mm-hmm. they, they've been able to separate themselves from Hasbro in a way that Wizards of the Coast hasn't, for obvious reasons, because they're owned by them. But you know, they, you've never seen the two sort of used in connection, and this just brings them into the light now, and mm. reinforces the fact that oh yeah, they licensed these things from Hasbro. Boo Hasbro, boo Renegade Game Studios. Look at you're just like Hasbro, which is not something if you were a leader at this game studio that you're going to want. Yeah. So it just seemed odd, but yeah, very odd. And, and if anything, I think what Renegade Game Studios has trouble with is is their own self identity because they do a lot of that licensing, right? Uh, I think Alice is missing is mm-hmm. from Hunters Entertainment, right? Like, but but licensed yep. to them and and Kids on Bikes as well. I think it's a, mm-hmm. so. If anything, I'm always confused about exactly what they have done versus someone else has done, and it feels like they're sort of selling it. And and that's where you know I wouldn't worry about some little game I'd, I'd solidify your image and who you are and what you do and communicate that better uh this all just seems like a, a bad a bad approach for for this studio hopefully they change that up yep yeah we'll see if there anything else comes from this or if it just sort of fizzles out <laughs> hey everybody this is Teos with an unusual update uh so you know just happened to notice right after we recorded that apparently this issue with renegade games has been resolved uh, the lawyers who perhaps acted without Renegade Games actually knowing it, sometimes uh, lawyers can do that. Uh, there was a conversation between uh, the Polyhedral Knights Kickstarter uh, creator and these lawyers and kind of went back and forth on what exactly the, their game is about and discussed it. And I guess now this issue has been resolved. One would guess that uh, the online Discord had a big played a big factor in this, and probably folks at Renegade Games said, "Hey, wait a minute." Um, there have been a number of cases like this over time, but I hope this does serve as a cautionary tale for our industry. And we're Sean and I are both really glad that this has been resolved. So, uh, good news, and we'll see what comes of this in the long run. Hopefully, it helps other companies. Uh, let's get back to Sean being able to actually move around. <laughs> we also have seen that EN World has put up a 2023 tabletop role-playing game freelance writer and editor pay survey. And they followed that up very recently within the last few minutes, I think, with a survey about artists and, and layout as well. So this survey is available on EN World, seeking to find typical freelance pay rates for writing and editing RPG products. You can take it uh, multiple times for each freelance job that you've had, assuming that you you know work in the industry. It focuses on just this year to reflect current rates because it's done a similar thing in the past. Uh, and this one does not gather industry names. 
Do you want to talk about the other surveys yeah. that, that uh, have been out there? Yeah, we reported how Jess Markham had done a survey, um, and, and this is no slight against Jess, but just I had hoped, because that one did actually gather company names, I thought that was sort of the point, to say, hey, here are the companies doing the best and doing the worst, which is actually something Ian World covered in a, in a link that we have um, in our show notes. Ian World actually talked about it. It surveyed companies and said, what do you, what do you the companies, pay people? And it was really interesting to see some of those rates come out really, really low. Uh, and that was way back in, in whenever it was, but you know, many years ago, 2015 or something, eight years ago. Yeah. Um, and then, I, so I thought Jess Markham was going to sort of update that to be, hey, you know, Cobalt Press is doing this, Paizo is doing this, Wizards is doing that. You know, that would have been really interesting to see. Um, but they decided to keep that information quiet and just shared sort of the freelance pay has been increasing, which I think we kind of knew. Um, the numbers are interesting, but but it doesn't really kind of blow things off. So I'm a little sad that this one also is, it's just telling us about the rates that people are getting now. That's good. You know, mm -hmm. I think it all is good because it brings attention to the issue. But but in sometimes I do think that it is good to hold companies a little bit accountable when they have a track record for poor pay or not paying you on time or anything mm -hmm. like that. And um, this came up over the weekend, too, with with Cryptozoic and the number of artists saying that one artist started it by saying, like, I don't know what to do. Cryptozoic isn't answering my mails. They're not paying me for the art I've done. And then began all these replies of other artists saying that they also are not getting paid by Cryptozoic. Right. So there are times when we do need to apply a little pressure in the industry and remind everybody that, hey, you've got to be on top of these things or you will you know, draw some fire and, and should draw fire. Yep. So that's our news. I wanted to mention one thing that I was going to mention last week, but didn't get a chance to. And that is, I want to thank everyone who's been supporting the Ghostfire Gaming Kickstarter, the Ethereal Expanse. Um, it, it came out about five days ago. We launched, we're approaching uh, 150,000 in just a few days. This book draws up on the fables that we've done for the ethereal expanse and for agents uh, of the empire looking at a setting with swashbuckling and super spy adventures for dnd fifth edition the book has new subclasses new monsters new magic and a big part of it is naval combat because mm. the ethereal the ethereal expanse is like the sea so you can sail ships up on it and you can fight pirates or each other um, as you go. So that Kickstarter is called the Ethereal Expanse Setting, and you can find it on Kickstarter. Awesome. Thanks for support. I backed it. Yep. So now we get to our main topic today here on Mastering Dungeons, and that is our pretty nifty trip through the Dungeon Master's Guide. We have gone through the first four chapters of this 2014 Dungeon Master's Guide, and we are now moving on to Chapter 5, which is Adventure Environments. So all the tables were slain in the Chapter 4 NPC section, but more tables have sprung up in Chapter 5. Sure did. So with this chapter, we look at adventure environments. So settings in which your adventures may take place. Uh, here's the little opening blurb. Many D&D &D adventures revolve around a dungeon setting. 
Dungeons in D&D include great halls and tombs, subterranean monster lairs, labyrinths riddled with death traps, natural caverns extending for miles beneath the surface of the world, and ruined castles. Not every adventure takes place in a dungeon, though. A wilderness trek across the desert of desolation, a favorite of Teos and my, myself, are a harrowing journey into or a harrowing journey into the jungles of the Isle of Dread can be an exciting adventure in its own right. In the great outdoors, dragons wheel across the sky in search of prey. Tribes of hobgoblins pour forth from their grim fortresses to wage war against their neighbors. Ogres plunder farmsteads for food, and monstrous spiders drop from the web-shrouded canopies of trees. So, this whole chapter talks about dungeons, and then it talks about wilderness, and it talks about urban encounters, and supposedly how to create and run them, but we'll see if we actually get into that as we go through this chapter. So, Teos, take it over from here while I have a little sip. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think they try to do a good job in this dungeon section to say that what they're trying to do is say dungeon is in term we're using for a lot of things that are indoors. But they don't super say that. And, and actually, I love this chapter a lot. So if I'm, if I'm critical, overall, I really like this chapter. I think it's one of the strongest ones in the book. Um, not that I wouldn't make some tweaks, but yeah. It, but the way it starts with saying dungeons are these things, and I think it's trying to paint that picture of it can be, uh, like if you look at the table, it'll say like, you know, a building in a city. But, but it, it should, I think, go a little, it should really state that a little more clearly for, for my benefit to say, this is a, a tool set we're applying. It's a, it's a way that we're, we're using a label for all of these very different things. And this process is going to help you really create what it should be. Don't get locked into one interpretation of what a dungeon is. Yep. Yeah, and I I think, like you say, they don't come out and say it, but they get that idea across. And then we go immediately into, okay, dungeons. Great, let's let's think about dungeons. And it says dungeons <laughs> are old, some dungeons. Yeah, some dungeons are old strongholds. Others are natural caves. Others attract cults and monsters and reclusive creatures. Dungeons are home to ancient treasures. And then they list many kinds of treasure. Uh, often guarded by traps or jealously kept by the monsters. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, that four lines, great summary. So let's talk about building a dungeon. And they're like, when you sit down to create a dungeon, think about its distinctive qualities. I'm like, yes, you should. Uh, a good adventure is at least somewhat tightly designed. You know, where it is and why it's there and who made it and who's there now it all should come together and, and so it should you should think about these distinct qualities and then it says let's roll on random tables to build one and i'm like you can totally do that <laughs> except that that then takes away from this tightly knit story that you're building about why it, it is where it is and who created it and all of that now you can still use the table and you can build that around it but you need to do the work then of saying why it is the way it is uh, if it's going to yeah. make sense in the adventure and that's where i think this is missing a statement so, that, that says we're going to give you tables because when you're going through the process 
if you hit a roadblock, a table can help you. Or you may want to roll on the tables and compare that to other ideas you have. I also think this should address the previous chapter we talked about, which is, what, two chapters ago, where it was trying to sort of help you create a plot around villains and so on. It should call back to that, right? Just as that one said to come here, but it's not as simple as that, right? There, there is a integration, as you're stating, between your plot, your villains, you know, all of this. And so there can be a real problem if you went and did what it said in, I think, chapter two or three, whichever it was. And then you start going in chapter three and then you start going into chapter five. And now you end up with something that's different, right? How do you nothing here says how to tweak it beyond your roles properly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like the first thing on the chart, the dungeon location is a building in a city. And that is very different from almost everything else on this list in a swamp. The, the difference between in a swamp and in a jungle might be yeah it, it's it's small uh the difference between you know in a chasm and a building in a city is very different right, right. If, if the whole idea was i'm gonna have a dragon you're right if i'm gonna have a dragon in this how did it get into the city why is it wanting to be in this it's but what we are going to do live or live ish in front of you is roll a random dungeon using all of the tables that they have supplied us with yep we've got we've got dice so teos roll a d100 to start us off and give us a location 80 80 this dungeon is on a mountain peak. All right. All right. So we have that going for us. Uh, so you you instantly think of things like, okay, flying might be important to the creatures that live here. If it's at the top of a mountain, otherwise they're trekking up and down this mountain constantly. Uh, we didn't roll uh, on the exotic location table, so we will move on. To the dungeon creator, which is a d20, which I will roll. And I rolled a five. So this was say, made by dwarves. And can I just say, yeah. that's another example of where, like, that exotic location table is really cool. But I only would have rolled if I got a 96 to 00 on the dungeon location table. Yeah. But, you know, I think that some words there to say, like, these are rarer. But if that's what catches your imagination and you want to make it on a cloud, go for it, right? Like I didn't design Storm King's or Cloud Giant's bargain uh, because I rolled the ninety six to zero zero. It's because that was the concept, right? Exactly. And it, like like all these tables, instead of using them as a table where you roll randomly, you use them as a pick list yeah. of things that sound good. So, for example, on this chart that I just rolled at, it's a d twenty roll, one to twenty. Um, so five to eight is dwarves. So, you know, a good portion of this 20% of this is dwarves and another 20%, 12, 13, 14, yeah, another 20% are humans. Yeah. So that's 40% of your dungeon creators are going to be those things. If you roll randomly, and that's but very, we rolled it. So we have, a, that's very, uh, like forgotten realms centric, right? It's this, it's a very like that's a, a certain campaign setting that leads you to that type of result and, and may not fit your right. Way. All right. Dwarves. All right, so we have dwarves great. who created this dungeon on a mountain peak, which is sort of 
the opposite of what you would most dwarves you think go down uh too, into too the ground down, these went up mm-hmm. these went down into the mountains so uh up uh, up into the mountaintop so we didn't get exact location like i said we got dungeon creator uh we didn't get religious cult or group so we don't need the role there uh there is an alignment table that if you got humans, you could roll the alignment or class. Do you want to roll the alignment and class for these dwarves? Just, sure. just for fun? Yeah, and and I because I think that this is something that might change in today's uh, situation where you're less saying like, well, the alignment is whatever it says for dwarves to be defaulted. Um, all right, so mm-hmm. that's a d20 roll. Whoa, that is a, a two. So they are lawful good. Two, they're lawful good. All right, so they their reasons. What I'm trying to do here is spur on our imaginations to see why they might do these things. And what's the class? I'm going to roll the class for, we'll say the leader or leaders of this. Mm-hmm. A 15, they were sorcerers That's or a perfect. sorcerer. Sorcerer dwarves. All right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So now the purpose of the dungeon is here again one to 20 so teos i will let you do that i got a 19 a tomb it's a tomb nice uh so the the purpose was a tomb i'm writing this down in our show notes purpose tomb all right so let's say that the sorcerer that is in question here was the one who is entombed and, and that's a great question, which is that I don't know in this process, are we supposed to be thinking right now? Like, I don't even right. like, you know, it, that's the kind of thing precisely. where it would be nice if the process reflected, went along with what mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be doing with it. Because right. I start thinking exactly so what, like you what are, each but I don't know if I'm supposed to. <laughs> right. Yeah. So each of these steps along the way, there should be a, even a short list of think about these topics. Mm-hmm. A, think about who is in the tomb, why they were entombed where they are. Uh, so we have a tomb. Next, we have the dungeon history, which should tell us a little bit more something. I will roll this 1 to 20. Uh, that is an 8. So it was conquered by invaders. Huh? So after the dwarves built it, its history says... Conquered by invaders, and I need to learn how to spell conquered. Hmm. All right. So what now do we go to? That's it. That's the that's the chart. Um, so we don't know who the invaders are. Uh, why they're there? Yeah, it doesn't have a table for inhabitants and all that after that. It just sort of stops, huh? Yeah, it says Dungeons Inhabitants, and then it yeah. it stops. Uh, it probably would. It'll probably say somewhere that you can roll random encounters. Uh, I know that in the the wilderness section it says that, right. but it doesn't really talk about anything else in terms of getting the what's there and why part of the of the dungeon. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean. The, yeah, the, I mean, so so that's what we get. We get the location, the creator, the purpose, the history. We might have had, you know, alignment and class. Um, we could have had a few other cult or religious group things like that. But that's really kind of it. So it's, I mean, it's not bad. I mean, you know, certainly something you mm-hmm. can work with. A tomb on a mountain peak built by the dwarves. 
led by a lawful good sorcerer, conquered by some sort of invaders, and the rest we've got to do ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think we're in the same situation here. We're looking at this going, if we're new, if you're a new DM reading this, where do you go from here? Uh, yeah, I mean, so there's, there's sections. Yeah. You know, this next section then says, after dungeons creators depart, anyone or anything might move in. And it gives some different examples if mind flyers live here or this. Um, and it says that there can be factions. Uh, think of a dungeon as a collection of encounters. But but this is, I feel like suddenly there was this shift, right? Which is what we're reacting to that we're like, okay, we're rolling this table. What's the next step in the process? And it's like, suddenly we're back to like discussing thinking and, and that's all fine, but it felt like a toolkit mm-hmm. and then toolkit suddenly abandoned us. <laughs> right. And, and you can continue that toolkit with questions or suggestions, but it's just sort of a, sometimes there are orcs in caves and sometimes there are mind players. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't really give you that. Yeah. It talks about factions, dungeon factions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, yeah, that's just one of many things that could take place yeah. and not even thinking about why. Uh, the, so what this does is, it's sort of this chapter divorces encounters from locations. It we've already we've already read about encounters and creating them. Now we're here and like oh look a dungeon a setting for your encounters, but it doesn't really talk about how putting together encounters for a dungeon would work, right? And what is important. And if I try to think, Sean, of what they might be doing, like maybe they're thinking, all right, you, then you go back to chapter three and you say your dungeon goal was, you know, roll on a D20. Uh, our goal was mm-hmm. hide from a threat outside the dungeon. And then I go to, you know, what is the adventure of villains? And, and so maybe the idea is that I should go back mm-hmm. here, but it should tell me to do that instead of saying, let's Precisely. read about possible dungeon inhabitants. Like what happened to this? It's like somehow it almost feels like two different people wrote this, and maybe they did, right? Maybe many different people wrote these mm-hmm. pieces, um, but but it doesn't link back to that. And I don't know that there is any uh, seeming logic, any apparent logic to why one chapter comes before the other, but then has NPCs and NPCs in the middle, right? Like, yeah, yeah, it's sort of bizarre. And I mean, they talk about. Uh, dungeon ecology and they make a sort of a big deal about dungeon ecology and it's all fine but how many years did you play before you even thought about dungeon ecology especially if you didn't dm and you were just a player right Hmm. there's always the joke about where do the monsters go to the bathroom (laughs) and that's something that's not important to me at all (laughs) <laughs> as a dm or as a player i i don't care we this is a magical world you know of of conan and red sonia and lord of the rings and all you know whatever i i am not worried about that at all and so sure you can you can talk about it about getting food and air and water and security 
But unless it really speaks to the plot of well, what's going on, I don't even know if too much needs to be made about that. I'll disagree with you a bit because I think what this is trying to do, and I think the problem here is this is is a shift, not just tonal shift, but a, but a mindset shift between outlining the concept of your dungeon and fleshing it out. Mm-hmm. The concept part, which mm-hmm. is where we were, is a really important process. And I think that worked fairly well to give us some possible ideas. And we may disagree with those ideas, and it should mm-hmm. say that. If you disagree, make it your own, whatever. Reroll, change it up. But mm-hmm. it, we were there doing that. Then what starts happening is you have to sit down and start populating that dungeon based on these concepts. And when you mm-hmm. do that, you need to apply whatever your plot concept is, which is going back to that earlier chapter. And that's where you start going like, well, if I have three levels of a dungeon, it can get boring. So think about factions, mm-hmm. right? That there is the orc zone and there's the goblin zone, whatever. And think of the ecology for it. Because maybe it's good to have a river run through one part of it and everything around that area is wet, right? And that dampness brings mm-hmm. in an ecology to it that's going to really establish some verisimilitude to it because it's going to have molds and fungi and it's going to have you know, the basilisk between the mushrooms and things like that. And the more that we put that in there, it feels really organic. <laughs> um, and if we do the other side yeah. is, you know, near the lava, you see what I did there. Uh, you know, that kind of thing, that yeah. does matter. It, it's not that it has to be that, you know, these mm-hmm. creatures feed off of those creatures type of ecology, more that the dungeon environment right. fits. And those are ways that you, when you're, it, that's stuff that you're applying when you get to that nitty gritty detail. Um, and, and, and that's where it's, it's just, it's such a weird juxtaposition to suddenly hit these topics here. They're good topics, but I, yeah. 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 When you say it that way, it it makes sense. I think the word ecosystem got me Mm -hmm. in that mindset of we're worried more about the verisimilitude of the reality than we are of the story. And they're certainly speaking and to that. Like here. you said, I mean, they do say yeah. that they say like it should have internal logic. And I'm with you. I don't know that it needs that internal logic. And, and a little logic goes a long way. Like when you have like one awful pit, that just kind of explains that everybody poops. <laughs> we're good with that, right? Like yeah. we don't have to, we don't need 40 bathrooms. We can just, yeah, we're reminded that yeah. these are living things. Yep. Cool. Move on. Okay. Then mm-hmm. we get to mapping. And the mapping, uh, you know, they, they give some good tips. They they talk about uh, asymmetrical rooms and map layouts make the dungeon less predictable. That's always that's always good. They say think in three dimensions, stairs, ramps, platforms, ledges, balconies, pits, and other changes in elevation make the dungeon more interesting and combat more challenging. I might push back on that a little bit. I don't think it is as interesting combat wise as people think it is all it generally does is slow people down or make you make checks to do the things one more check to do the things that you would normally do uh so you know i'm cool with having a a platform and somebody up on top of the platform but to have 27 different ledges and three you know different levels for this if you do that too often it yeah i love elevation changes <laughs> no it's good it's good we have these differences it's, in some cases but because i do and no, I, I do hear what you're saying it can totally be problematic yeah. if you spend like if you put a stairwell 
to get to the archers and it takes you three rounds to get there that's not good right you've got to make it fun mm -hmm. and easy to get to these places but otherwise i do right. really like having features to overcome like that the the reason i say that is because for fourth edition i was right from the start the direction i got from wizards was put in lots of elevation changes mm -hmm. and i did uh, some that were very important, some that were just there for the heck of it. And as I was running these things, the every once in a while it would be interesting, but for the most part, it mm -hmm. was just slowing things down and making the movement, making you work for something that you would normally get for free mm -hmm. uh, and without much consequence to the overall action of, of the story. So... Sure. Yeah, elevation change cool yeah, for a good reason mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah, haha. <laughs> See what you did again. Uh, you say give the dungeon some wear and tear, unless you want to stress that the dungeon's builders were extraordinarily skillful. Collapsed passages can be commonplace, cutting off formerly connected sections, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Earthquakes, splitting rooms, corridors uh, make interesting episodes. Totally for sure. Um, good advice. Incorporate natural features into even a constructed dungeon. I feel like I'm now like building golf courses. It's like, let's use the natural landscape and the pond for it's like, for yeah, this is area. this is cool, but right, yeah, okay, yeah. The you know, there's a mountain and so it's built onto the mountainside and there's a natural lava flow. Cool. I I that that's fine. And it's fine, but th that's where I think what the real point of that, the reason why this works really well is because it breaks up monotony. And I think that's the part that's the mm -hmm. big lesson that should be here is break up the monotony, right? Like they talk about doors and the point of these doors, like nobody cares about doors except that they do break up the action. They create pauses, they change things up. And what's mm -hmm. really good is when the door is interesting, right? But you can't have every door be interesting. And to me, those mm -hmm. are the kinds of lessons that I'd like to see here. Um, versus just saying like there are stuck right. doors, you know, make a check. There's a, you know, yeah, sure. But why do I use these? When do I use these? And that's, that's the important part. Yep. It, it's sort of what we've been saying all along with most of this. It's don't just tell me what, tell me why. Mm -hmm. And so they say add multiple entrances and exits. Nothing gives players a stronger sense of making real decisions and having multiple ways to enter the dungeon. Sure. Uh, add secret doors and secret rooms to reward players who take the time to search for them. Maybe, sometimes. Um, what do you do if you you a secret door in the first room? What happens in every single room from then on? Mm -hmm. We search the room, and it sort of becomes a rote thing that slows down the game. So, secrets and surprises are cool, but be wary in the following ways of doing so right and that's not expressed there so what did they leave out for on tips for for mapping a dungeon i had a couple yeah, one is remember that remember that gameplay and combat must actually take place in this in these dungeons prioritize the fun and effective gameplay over quote realism if realism and fun gameplay are in conflict ditch realism Go with fun gameplay. Yeah, I'm looking at you, maps from Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. Mm -hmm. I'm looking for you just about every map that I made before I knew what I was doing. 
and if, you if know, your creatures and the characters don't fit in the room because there aren't yes. enough squares for that come on yeah <laughs> yep you, you have to think these things through watch out for choke points like doorways and hallways it can be fun in small doses to have the characters moving up a five foot wide hallway to only the people in the front and the back can engage with the monsters that have surrounded them. And everyone in melee, everyone else is firing over or doing certain things. It can be fun once it can be fun twice, but when every single time the doorway gets jammed up, so that only one person can fight and no one can get into access. It, it becomes a drag. Yeah. Any other uh, pacing, tips that you can think right? of? I mean, for... pacing is such yeah. a huge thing that that with a dungeon, like if you just have like cell after cell that you're supposed to in- investigate or uh, expedition to the barrier peaks is probably the best example where there are levels that just have tons of tiny rooms with nothing mm-hmm. in them but like skeletons over and over and over again. And it gets so old uh, anytime you have that, right? You need to step back and think, what, what is, what am I doing here? Uh, and it's fine mm-hmm. to say that there should be many inhabitants, but then just explain that this whole thing is a zone and, and the action only happens in this place, right? Think of the yeah. pacing of it, how it's going to play out. Great idea. Uh, think of the size of your typical battle map. If you run on a grid and your battle map is 30 by 30, um, don't make your dungeon so big that you can't fit it on that battle map there's some um, things so that there are i've i've, I've run go ahead john i was just gonna say i've run several adventures where the the map as it's laid out is just like two squares too wide or two squares too high and i'm like why why yeah. go ahead um, well, I was just thinking that in Forge of Foes, we have a number of articles in this book that we wrote about um, how to make interesting encounters. And, and I know this goes back into the encounter piece, but it really does matter when you're thinking about the dungeon overall to work off of these themes and incorporate these themes into things and how you change it up. So, for example, we talk about um, playing against expectations, right? So if you have something like a water elemental in a lava area and why and those kinds of things wake up players right so doing things because the whole and and what's what's missing here throughout this is you are creating an experience it's almost like you're creating a movie Mm -hmm. right you're creating a novel like you are plotting this out and it the point is to make this awesome so you need to have things that are going to periodically cause introspection right uh like it talks about hazards but you know puzzles not everybody loves puzzles, mm-hmm. but some people do. A proportion of people really do. And it changes the action. And even the person who doesn't like the puzzle can sit back and get a little bit of a break. And then we go to a combat, right? And so that kind of dynamic of pacing, mm-hmm. of changing up what you're involving, that's really critical in this. Yeah. And what this really sums up as is you are going to have to iterate between the maps you make and the encounters and adventures that you put on that map. Because you can make the map first, but you're going to find out that, oh, this room would be a lot more interesting if, because there's a lich here, I put an area where the lich can hide for for a round or two. So I need to make that change. Or, oh, I'm going to have four huge monsters in this room. I need to expand this room a bit. 
and it's okay. And you're going to do that multiple times as you go from your map to your adventure, to your map, to your adventure, to your map, to your adventure. And that's okay. Don't be tied to either aspect uh, because otherwise you're going to be either frustrated yourself or frustrate your players once the adventure starts. Well, I think that would be a good place to end because next time we can talk about wilderness and mapping wilderness and settlements and making urban adventures and encounters and traps and so on and so on and so on. <laughs> Anything to add before we uh, take off, Deus? No, I mean, I think this, again, you know, it has really neat ideas and I think it's a valuable piece to read. Um, it just isn't a process, which is a, a thing we've seen throughout this book. It, it could be a better process for today's audience. And hopefully the, the mm -hmm. revised 2024 version will look at that and give us more of that. For sure. So thank you, Teos, for your expertise here. And thank you to our listeners. If you are a patron of the show, we thank you specifically. Uh, thank you to our Master of Dungeons supporters. Uh, thank you also to our Masters of the Realms, who get listed in our show notes. And to our Masters of the Multiverse patrons, well, you get a special shout-out. Keith Ammon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, Darren Chandler, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Jim Klingler, a.k.a. DM Prime Mover, Travis Lee, Chad Lynch, The Mathemagician, Eric Mingi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Chance Russo at Drago Russo, Ross Sandberg, Krishna Simone Say It Again, Joe Tyler, James Walton, and Graham Ward. Thank you to our listeners and our patrons. You can become a patron of the show by going to uh, patreon.com slash masteringdnd. And we very much appreciate your support. I may even throw a video up just for patrons talking about a very important topic that Merrick Blackman brought up. Mm. Uh, so... Uh, you can also uh, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would help us with our uh, optics there. And you can subscribe via YouTube if you want to engage with us that way. So, Teos, where can people find you on the intro webs? Oh, yeah. Uh, head to alphastream.org. There you will see that the top post is all about uh, the latest YouTube video I have for success in RPGs. It is how to use the open gaming license in seven easy steps uh but why you might want to use it or not use it as well so that's important uh you can find me from there and all the other socials and stuff sean where do we find you well i want to know how to use the ogl so you i'm going to be there first but then after i read all about that you can find me on twitter or on mastodon at sean merwin the podcast is also on twitter at mastering dnd &D and also on mastodon at dice camp uh you can join our community and ask questions by joining our Patreon that we've already talked about. And you can leave comments on our Mastering Dungeons YouTube channel, YouTube at Mastering Dungeons. So, Teos, now that we 
know all there is to know about dungeons and mapping them, what are we going to do now? Uh, let's see. Uh, it looks oh. like I'm going to go build a temple or shrine. Are you? I'm going to explore that mountaintop tomb of the Dwarven Sorcerer, fighting my way through the invaders to figure out what's going on there. Mountaintop tomb of the Dwarven Sorcerer. Band or album? <laughs> Both. 